You know, uh, there was a dog chasing an 18-wheeler. What do you think that dog was wishing for? He was wishing he could catch it, right? What would he do with it when he caught it? Sometimes our wishes are like that. We would wish for something, but if we got our wish, we wouldn't know what to do with it. And many times I've wished for things, and looking back, I'm thanking the Lord that I didn't get what I wished for. Thinking, oh, Lord, you spared me that. So we do need to be careful, saying, well, you know, I wish, I wish, I wish. But if you open up your bulletins to the note-taking section of your bulletin, for those of you who have something to write with, I would like for you to write down the one wish you have for your congregation, for the people of God that are members of this church. I would like for you to write down the one wish you would have for the fellowship of believers who are a part of the Goodlettsville Baptist Church. You see, Paul, as he journeyed, he's now in his second missionary journey. Everywhere he went, he established churches. He believed, as I do, that the only thing that has any internal, eternal significance is the church. Everything else will be burnt up and destroyed. Our houses will go, our cars will go, our jobs will be over, our health will be gone, our wealth will be gone. Everything we're a part of will vanish except the work of the church. And it's eternal. So he would go into a city like Thessalonica, and he would usually go to the synagogue, as he did there in Thessalonica, and start, as recorded in Acts chapter 17, he'd start preaching that Jesus is the Christ of the Old Testament. And that the whole Old Testament is all about Jesus. And the whole Old Testament is all about starting this thing called the church and letting it rise up and do a great and mighty redemptive work for everybody. And usually he'd get kicked out of the synagogue. He'd get fired, in other words. Then he'd go out into the highways. He'd go out into the streets. And at Thessalonica, they had never heard the gospel before. Could you imagine somebody coming to Goodlettsville and coming to your church and start preaching about Jesus, and people came that had never heard the gospel. And it says, I believe it's in verse 6 of, of Acts 17, that many, many believed. Some Jews, some Greeks, some women, some men. But there was a great revival I mean, people got saved everywhere. He was only able to be there for three weeks. 
And I say three weeks, somewhere between two and four weeks. And the religious people of that day were jealous that so many had come to embrace Jesus as the Christ. You know, revivals are scary. You know what revivals do to churches? They mess them up. You have a revival here and have a hundred people saved. I'm telling you, everything, your parking will be, your parking place will be taken, your pew will be taken. Just everything will go crazy. And you know what? Some people will get jealous. It's not like it used to be. We want it back the way it was. So they hired these religious people that believed that religion was a ritual you did, not a relationship you had. They believed it was something you did to appease the gods rather than something you did because God in His marvelous grace had a redemptive plan through Jesus Christ. They hired a bunch of thugs. They hired a hit group to take Paul out, kill him. He had been staying in Jason's house. They got to Jason's house and Paul and Silas and Timothy weren't there. They roughed up Jason and found out that Paul and them had gone to Berea. And those thugs went toward Berea to try to catch them and beat them up. All under the guise of religion. You see, religion is not what Christianity is. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship with Jesus the Christ of the Old Testament, declared in the New Testament, and, it, and that which empowers us by His Holy Spirit. That's what Christianity is. Well, Paul went on to Corinth, and from there sent Timothy back to see how things were going in Thessalonica. And things were going in a phenomenal way. I mean, tremendous. And Paul and Timothy comes back and reports to Paul how great things are going on among the believers. But there's much persecution. The same religious group that tried to get Paul down was trying to take out the church at Thessalonica. So Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. We think it was probably his second writing. In this book, in this 1 Thessalonians, he writes a very personal part. You know, he said, man, I love you. I would like to be with you. And in verse 10 of chapter 3, we're going to pick up this morning. And I hope you've got your wish list written down because the wish of Paul is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. And it goes like this. Night and day we pray earnestly that we might see you again 
and supply what? What does he want to supply for them? That which is lacking in their faith. His wish for the church at Thessalonica is that he could supply for them what is lacking in their faith. Now, another translation, one that's a little more contemporary, says this, We do what we can, praying always, night and day, asking for the bonus of seeing your faces again, and doing what we can to help when your faith falters. So what is his wish for the church at Thessalonica? What is his wish? That he could strengthen their faith. Now what kind of faith is he talking about? These He's writing to who? He's writing to believers. Why do believers need their faith strengthened? They're already a faith Jesus Christ. He is Lord and Savior of their lives. Why do you need, what kind of faith are we talking about here? We're not talking about saving faith. We're talking about what? We're talking about living faith. We're talking about a faith that can deal with issues of life. And my prayer for you, my wish for you at Goodlettsville is this. That somehow or another, your faith to live out that which you have within you would flourish in 2009. In other words, no matter what situation you get into, no matter what circumstance, I have just passed by one of the most difficult years in my entire life. And my prayer, with my wife's prayer, was this, that our faith would not falter. And that's Paul's prayer, that's Paul's wish for the church at Thessalonica. Would you write that down for your wish for this church? I pray that I can be a part of helping the believers in this church that their faith will not falter. In other words, that their faith would grow in the midst of every circumstance, every situation. 08 was a difficult year for America. And for many of you, you have hardships today that you did not have a year ago today. Some of you who have retirements, they have been reduced drastically. Some of you who have jobs, the jobs are suspicious at best. And some you've lost jobs. And we can get caught up in that. The divorce process, I, because I am not senior pastor any longer, I've been doing more counseling, and I have never seen the troubled marriages as they are today. It's just unbelievable. I mean, some have just been married months, and their marriage is in trouble. Some have been married in the 30s and 40 years, and their marriages are in trouble. And my wish is that 
their faith could work through the relationships within the framework of their families so that their faith is strengthened wherever they are and whatever circumstance they're in. Now, are you okay with that wish? How many of you, without showing your hands, how many of you would say, you know what, I'll make that my wish for our church this year? That we would be a people of faith. We will faith the Lord Jesus Christ with every aspect of our church and with every member of our church so that each will not falter in their faith but will increase in their faith. Now, if you don't remember anything else I say this morning, because we're going to outline how Paul thought this needed to be done. But the wish I want you to remember, wish for your brothers and sisters in Christ that their faith will be strengthened in whatever circumstance they're in, whatever situation they're in. Let me tell you what happens if it's not strengthened. You get discouraged. You get defeated. You get negative. And sometimes you even get out of touch with the church. I've known people who have a crisis in their lives and they run from the church rather than run to the church. Now, in these next few verses... He unfolds the three things that are involved, and I'm going to give you all three of them. In other words, what do you need, the next thing, what do you need to do to repair your faith? What relationship needs to be reconciled? Where are the spiritual slash relational gaps in your faith? Now, I'm going to give you the whole outline that you have in your bulletin. The reality is this. He gives three areas that we must work on if our faith is going to be strengthened. And it doesn't have anything to do with buildings or budgets. It doesn't have anything to do with the style of worship. It doesn't have anything to do with the time of scheduling anything. Those We think these are primary of a church. These are very culturally driven here are the primary things you must be involved with if your faith is going to be strengthened. First of all, you must feast on fellowship. Secondly, you must focus on love. And thirdly, forgiveness must be a part of your life so that you're strengthened toward a blameless, holy life. Now I want to read, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them up. And I want to read verses 11, 12, and 13. I've given you the outline of these three verses. you got your Bibles open. They won't be up on the screen. So I want you to look at your Bibles, and I'm going to read verses 11, 12, and 13. And I want you to mark these three things. You say, well, you know, I want my faith strengthened this year. And I want to be a part of helping others Faith be strengthened as well. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our ways to you. 
And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in what? In love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, so that we may establish your hearts, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now let me tell you, to begin with, I want to back up. I want to start at the very end. The number one thing that will strengthen your faith is the anticipation of the Lord's return. As a matter of fact, 1 Thessalonians is written about that. And there's all kinds of ideas as to how it's going to happen. And unfortunately, if you read books about the second coming, it's mostly about how it's going to happen. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. The reality is, all we're to do about the second coming is what? Live with great expectancy for it to happen. George W. Truett, who was a great pastor of First Baptist Church, Dallas, he was the first national pastor. He was the first pastor that connected with the presidents of the United States. First Baptist pastor. First Southern Baptist pastor. He was a post-millennialist. He was followed by W.A. Criswell. W.A. Criswell was a pre-millennialist. Let me ask you, does it matter? No. Let me tell you, those kind of ideas, they come and they go, and they've come and they've gone in Christendom for 2,000 years. And what Satan wants us to do about the second coming is this. He wants us to major on the how. What the Lord wants us to do is to get ready for the when. So major on the when. And let me tell you something. It could happen today. It could happen before this service is over. But we don't know when. Even the angels don't know when. But the reality is, if, we're, if our faith is going to be strengthened, we live with great expectancy of the coming of the Lord. And it will be a great event, as is recorded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So with that in mind, what are the three things I'm involved with now in the midst of this great expectancy? First of all, I'm to feast on fellowship. During our studies of the Psalms, Marilyn and I got involved in a study of the Psalms of Ascent. I think I mentioned that the last time I was here. Psalms 133 is a psalm about fellowship. As a matter of fact, the word unity and fellowship can be used synonymously. If we have unity, we have fellowship. If we have fellowship, we have unity. If we don't have fellowship... We don't have unity. If we don't have unity, we don't have fellowship. In a Southern Baptist 
congregation like this, what do we think about as fellowship? Come on, what is it? One word. Food. Absolutely. Y'all are, I'm telling you, y'all are great Baptists. I love you. That's tremendous. Let's fellowship together around what? Food. As a matter of fact, we can't hardly, matter of fact, we can't hardly have a fellowship without food. The fellowship of the Bible is not connected to food. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't have fellowship with food, but it's not connected to food. Let's read first Psalm. Let's read Psalms 133. I believe it's up on the screen. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in fellowship. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon was falling out on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessings, even life forevermore. The concept of precious oil and the concept of dew have to do with their symbols for God's Holy Spirit working in a place. And he is saying it is precious when God's Holy Spirit is pouring down on a congregation, is pouring down on an individual, is overwhelming that individual to where everything they think about is God-powered because the Holy Spirit has a hold of them. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon. See, Mount Hermon was a high place in Israel. Mount Zion was a low place in Israel, even though it was a mount there in Jerusalem. But they were skies apart, and dew never fell on Mount Zion. But it always fell on Mount Hermon. And the idea is dew comes in the evening, at night, when we're asleep. You've never seen dew at 12 o'clock noon, have you? It comes in the quiet of the night while we're sleeping. And the Holy Spirit is to work on us and to come into us when we least anticipate it, when we're sleeping, and wake us up and we say, Oh, my goodness, look at the dew. Look at the power of the Holy Spirit that's in, my, in this place today. Fellowship in the Old and New Testament is always not around food, but around what? The Holy Spirit. If you have fellowship, the power of the Holy Spirit puts you together. And what is the object of fellowship, biblically speaking? The object of fellowship is always God. Fellowship is what we do as believers with God as the object. It's easy to confuse in a Baptist circle activities for fellowship. Koinonia, fellowship, is always with fellow believers with God as the object. In other words, I'm with you so that I can strengthen your faith and you're with me so you can strengthen my faith 
And if we do not have unity, if we do not have fellowship, if we do not have koinonia, we will not grow in our faith. Fellowship is never present where division is. You've never seen it in this church, but I've known men and women who were always disrupting the fellowship in other churches where I've been. It's because they will not allow the power of the Holy Spirit to get a hold of them and guide them and direct them. I remember when we brought a keyboard into the sanctuary, you'd have thought, you would have thought, well, I don't know what you'd have thought. I don't know where you come from that. You may have thought that was a terrible thing. When we changed our music at Inglewood Church, you know why we changed the music? So that we could reach the next generation. It's the only reason why we changed it. You know, I love southern gospel music. I love the great hymns. But do you know, if you studied the younger generation, they love Christian music. They are dominated by Christian music, but it's not the kind I grew up with. And when we changed that, I'm telling you what, we couldn't keep them. We had three services in the old sanctuary. We couldn't keep growing, and we couldn't keep... I was back in your nursery area. There are not many babies back there. We now have over 250 babies every Sunday morning. Reaching the next generation. As we sing God's praises with hands lifted, that's biblical. And clapping, that's biblical. But it wasn't the way the Baptists did it in the 50s. And if a church is going to reach the next generation, we must strengthen our faith by the work of the Holy Spirit coming within our congregation and get so excited about it, we just want everybody to come and we'll do anything and everything possible to reach the next generation with the gospel. Church is not about me. It's not about you. It's about the work of the Holy Spirit bringing people to salvation in Jesus Christ and strengthening believers that they'll be more like Jesus. That's all the church is about. It's not about whether you have a pew or a chair. It's not about whether you have a choir or a praise team. It's not about whether you have an organ and piano or you have keyboards. It's not about any of that. And I'll declare if we don't get caught up in that mess and find disunity... You know why we find disunity? You know why we don't find fellowship? It's because we don't allow the Holy Spirit freedom to work in our midst and expand our horizons in our communities and ultimately around the world. Feast on fellowship. If you're going to grow in your faith, if this congregation is going to be stronger in its faith this time next year than it is this year, you will feast on fellowship. Secondly, you will focus on love. Look at verse 12. And may the Lord cause you to do what? Come on, are you with me now? Are you, you still out there? Increase and in what? Abound in love for one another. That means all the believers and who else? And who else? That means everybody. That means you too, ladies. 
That's a generic men. In other words, we're going to get, we're going to have the, it's the word agape here. Agape love is going to do what? It's going to increase. Agape love is never stagnant. It is always active. It's either going up or down. You do not love me like you loved me this time last year. You either love me, your love has either increased for me or decreased for me. There is nothing stagnant in the word love. In other words, it's always increasing. Agape, that which multiplies, and the idea is it multiplies abundantly. It overflows to excess. The idea of that is this. You can't show agape love to one another too much. And you can't show agape love to every person in this community too much. And if your faith is going to increase and not falter, you will see to it that this church is a loving church for one another and for every member of this whole community and ultimately for every person in the whole world. You'll have to throw out your prejudices and your pride and love on people. Jesus showed agape love in that while we were yet sinners, He did what? Come on, and while we were yet sinners, He did what? He died for us. If we show agape love while others are yet sinners, we will die for them. Did you hear that? We will. As a matter of fact, we'll kill anything in our church, any program, any plan, any process that is not showing agape love. This is not a get-together, my little group and no one else place. This is a gathering of every person who we can possibly share the good news of Jesus Christ with and gather them into our group. The tragedy of our Sunday schools these days is that Sunday school used to be the evangelism arm of the church. It was the place where we, we promoted. You know why we promoted? So that we wouldn't get stagnant with the same group. And we would continue to have new people in our group. And we would continue to outreach so that we could reach every person in our community with the agape love of God in Jesus Christ. Sunday school quit that years ago. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. And I would say of your Sunday school class, the number one thing your Sunday school class should do is fellowship. Koinia. Number two, love each other. And that means love everybody that could possibly, you could get in that class. So if you're going to increase in your faith, what are you going to do? We're going to make a commitment as a Sunday school group, as whatever group we are, a youth group, a college group, a preschool group. We're going to see what we can do to bring young families under the Word of God, under the work of God. And we'll die if it takes death for me or takes death for a program. We'll let her die 
so that we can reach out. Many programs we've stopped at Englewood Church. Not that they were not good programs. Some of you wouldn't like some of those we stopped. But they were not outreach programs. They were not extending the love of Christ. And so we'd find a program that would work. You cannot use agape love too much. The effort of love is that it reaches out to everyone. The effect of love is that it is the one thing you cannot do in excess. Love, however, without the help of God, is love tainted by our own selfish, self-centered, sinful nature. It is only as we know the unconditional love of God in Christ that we'll be able to love one another. And I ask you, do you want your faith to increase? If that's your wish, you need to work on agape love. It may be that you need to do it at home. It may be that you need to do it where you work. It may be that you need to do it where you go to school. It definitely needs to be done where you go to church. And what should be said of, of uh, this church, Goodlessville, about forgot I wasn't at Inglewood, is this. They're the lovingest bunch of people we've ever known. And you know how you know if you love? If you give. There is no take in agape love. There is only give. God so loved the world that He did what? He gave. There's no taking agape love. And we live in a what kind of society? A taking society. So you see, you're going to have to revolutionize your society. In other words, we're different at the church. We're a giving congregation. You say, oh, he's talking about money. I'm talking about giving giving them my time, my talents, my resources, my efforts, my prayers. Paul said he prayed day and night. It also says earlier that he worked day and night. Now, how did he work day and night and pray day and night? Have you ever put those together? Huh? Come on. How, how do you put that together? He worked as he prayed and he prayed as he worked. That's a pretty good combination. You go at it as if it all depends on you, and you pray knowing it all depends on God. Well, number three, and I see my times. I don't know. I never know when you get out of this place. The guys asked me, what time do we get out? I said, well, we should be out by 1230. And I saw, oh, no. Well, you know, I don't know what time you get out. You, no one's ever told me. Told me when to start, but they've never told me when to stop. Oh, you say, oh, you want me to stop now? One more point. And this is so significant. Oh, it's so significant. Listen to verse 13. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God, the Father, when our Lord Jesus comes with all His holy ones. What is the... How do you strengthen 
your hearts to be blameless and holy. How do you do that? You come before the altar of God's marvelous grace with repentant hearts, willing to receive His forgiveness where your faith has not been growing and commit afresh to His grace so that your faith can grow. We ourselves will not grow in holiness. There's nothing about us that's holy. Only God is holy. But the Bible says, Be ye holy as I am holy. Well, then how do we do that? We do that under the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives and bringing us before the altar of repentance and receive forgiveness and make a fresh start with His marvelous grace. I'm saying a bunch of stuff here, guys and gals. I'm talking primarily to believers this morning. But let me tell you, there is no progress without forgiveness. Zero. Zero. As a matter of fact, repentance is the beginning point of faithing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Out of our repentant heart comes forgiveness. And we faith Jesus as Lord and Savior. But that never changes. We're secure. Eternally secure in Christ. But if we're going to grow in living faith, we constantly must come before the altar of His grace with repentant hearts. And a church needs to do that. A people of God say, you know what? We are not reaching our community as we should. And we need to go before the altar of His grace and ask His forgiveness for putting some priorities on our church that are not impacting the lost world and figure out what we need to do to impact our lost world. Because the lost world is hungry for the gospel. They were hungry in Thessalonica in the first century. They're hungry in Goodlettsville in the 21st century. But we can't sit on this hill and do church without repentant hearts. I have said this to my own congregation at Englewood many times. If you have never had a recommitment of your life to Jesus Christ in the last five years, I'm talking about coming before the altar of His grace in tears of repentance. You're probably not walking with Jesus as you should. It's not a one-time thing. It's a continual thing. How do you know how to do that? From God's Word and God's work that He calls you to. I want us to close right there this morning. Let me say to this, I love this church, okay? I don't have anything but positive to say about this church. Whether you like it or not, I'm a part of you and you're a part of me. But I want the faith of this church to excel in 2009. 
That's, what I, that's my wish for this church. Would you be one of the members that say, I want that also. That's my wish. That's the only wish I have for this church. And I am willing to go forward toward that as my fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ expands and as my love for the brethren and for everybody grows. And I'm willing to ask God's forgiveness where I have not been consistent with the work of the kingdom. I'm not taking the Great Commission serious. I've not taken the Great Commandment serious. I've been so involved in what I'm going to get out of church and how it's going to do it, how we're going to do it my way. I'm wanting the Holy Spirit to take over our church and do it its way, His way.